the workplace is a perfect place to practice healing. And what I like to say is I like to teach people through the Healing at Work book and, and my course and some other things that I do, that we can actually use the workplace as a laboratory for emotional healing. And so it's grounded in the fact that the majority of us came from some form of a dysfunctional childhood. And in my case, I was really completely unaware, you know, yeah. complete lack of awareness about how much my own past was affecting me every single day in my corporate life. When I was a kid, my dad told me flat out, you're not supposed to enjoy your job. So that's a belief that I took into my working life. Now, I'm happy to say I did seek enjoyment from my job. But what I did learn and did internalize was that you weren't really supposed to show up at work as yourself, that it was wrong to bring feelings into work. And we know from research over the past 10, 20 years that in fact, that's not the best way for performance. That being authentic, bringing your true, true self really does allow us to achieve more and do more together. Now, what if I said to you, the workplace could be a place to heal. You might be thinking, well, Carolyn, you're taking that one step too far. Well, our guest today on the show, Susan Winchester, who has a wealth of experience at very high levels in organizations, in very large organizations at that, she has written a book called Healing at Work. And we are going to talk about why healing at work is needed right now and how can we do it? And I think what you're going to hear in this conversation is it's easier than you might think. Now, just a few more things about Susan before we jump into this conversation. Susan Winchester is the Senior Vice President and CHRO for Applied Materials. Applied Materials is a Fortune 150 Silicon Valley semiconductor company and has more than 35,000 global employees. In total, she has about 35 years of experience in HR, providing executive leadership in a whole host of organizations. She's the author of this book we're going to talk about, and she wrote this book in, common, in partnership with Martha Finney. Now, additionally, Susan is a fellow of the National Academy of Human Resources, which is the highest professional honor for leaders in HR. She serves as a board member for the HR Policy Association and for the Executive Committee of the Peer Roundtable for CHROs. I'm so excited to have Susan on the show, and let's see what we learn from her today. Welcome, Evolve listeners. We are in a new year when you will be listening to this episode. Uh, heads up, though, it is being recorded at the end of 2023. But I thought it would be a wonderful way to kick off 2024 by having the author of, I'm going to say, maybe one of my top two, top two or three favorite books I've ever read, wow. Healing at Work. So Susan Winchester, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Well, like I said, your your book, it's like, oh my gosh, where has this book been all my life? And I just felt, you know, I, I read it from like front to end and, and couldn't put it down. And so I'm hoping that we can bring the contents, the topics, the great 
suggestions and insights you have into our conversation today. You know, as, as I shared with you, this podcast is for leaders. It feels like you wrote this book just for us on this podcast. So Susan, why don't we just start off healing at work? Like, where did that come from? Why do we need to heal at work? Well, First of all, most of us generally think of the workplace as not a place to heal. In fact, a lot of people think about the workplace as a source of conflict, stress, worry, and you know disappointment. I think that it often gets that rap for not necessarily being a place viewed as healing. And you know the concept of healing at work came in my partnership with my co-author Martha Finney who is just amazing. And, and working together, we, we realized that actually the workplace is a perfect place to practice healing. And what I like to say is I like to teach people through the Healing at Work book and, and my course and some other things that I do, that we can actually use the workplace as a laboratory for emotional healing. And so it's grounded in the fact that the majority of us came from some form of a dysfunctional childhood. And in my case, I was really completely unaware, you know, yeah, lack, too. complete lack of awareness about how much my own past was affecting me every single day in my corporate life. And Martha, who I think is very evolved, I love the name of your podcast. Uh, she knew, she knew she was very conscious of how much her past uh, was affecting her and her choices related to her own career. And so I think it's a very personal, different experience that we all have related to the workplace. But when in our work together, we realize that actually workplace conflict in particular, those moments when we get emotionally triggered by somebody else or when we've done something that's triggered someone else, that's typically the launch into a lot of negative emotion. Yeah, where we spiral downward. And then I spent a lot of years of my almost 36 year career spiraling into that place of you know, misery. <laughs> but actually, if we start to understand that linkage to our childhood and our beliefs about ourselves, how we interpret things and then how we take action to manage our environments, we can actually start using those workplace moments of conflict, what Martha and I call bumper car moments to actually practice responding and interpreting current day moments through a very different lens, through a conscious lens. And the concept of healing at work was born. Yeah, it was, I mean, you know, I know you've read or, or have read a little bit about, about my book and mm -hmm. I, I love the way you've positioned your work and it feels, it feels so accessible, uh, accessible and real. And, you know, both you and Martha, I know shared, some deep intimate stories about as you said your unconscious sort of place i was in the exact same place like literally in one of those chapters i was like oh my gosh am i am i reading about me like let me check the cover <laughs> of this book and so like why do we need healing at work now why is now the time well first of all i think that the world is ready for healing you know, when I think about all the divisiveness happening everywhere yeah. around the world and the, the opposing views and the fights and the wars and, you know, coming out of the pandemic, of course, it was a pretty stressful time period for a lot of people. You talk a lot about that in your own book is the opportunity for so many of our companies, mine included, I'm really proud to work at Applied Materials to start, not start, but to build on what we've always been doing to take care of our people. And I think that the, the, the movement that's happening 
from the standpoint of wanting to create, you know, engaging workplaces, you know, focusing on employee experience, there's this growing body of work. You are a key leader in this in this movement. Um, there are others as well who are starting to bring uh, what you talk about a trauma informed leadership perspective into the workplace. Like, like you also say in your book, not asking you know leaders to be experts on how to diagnose right. trauma. That's not what we're doing. But when we start to understand that the majority of people, the research shows you know nearly two thirds experienced at least one major adverse childhood experience before the age of 18. And as a result of that, you know, we're coming into the workplace with a lot of baggage that we often don't realize. And so I think it's starting to take the, the whole topic of mental well-being in the workplace to a whole new level. And I frankly think the world is ready for that. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, like, like I said, we're, in the, we're, we're cohorts in this movement to try to evolve our organizations to understand that so much of what's going on in the workplace is never spoken about. Relationships that get damaged because of a conflict that occurs where the two people are having a complete overreaction because of things that happened to them when they were little. There's so much opportunity to, to help leaders understand how we can become aware, become conscious of the impact of our past in our corporate and our workplace experiences. Yeah. And so I think we're, you know, I, I think this movement's been building, but I think it's getting stronger. And because so many of our companies are really focusing on mental wellness, well-being in the workplace, I can't think of a better time for us to be talking about this. Yeah, I agree. I saw some research. I think it was Ontario based. I'm in Canada. And it was, it was saying that the next, next generation, I guess, Gen Z mm -hmm. was saying the well-being supports that are in the workplaces not enough, not good enough. And that's exactly where my head went to is like, we need to really dig under the rock and get to the core of things. And you know, you you talk about the journey being, you know, you call it like an unconscious sort of work. What did you I, I had it written yeah. down? Unconscious, like reactivity. What was it? Unconscious wounded career path. Yes, I spent 30 of my 36 years. You know? Yeah, you know, it's yeah. a miserable place to be. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, you you have an extensive background in HR. And, you know, I also read in your book, too, HR professionals are in this, I guess, unfortunate or fortunate place of bearing witness to all of that unconscious behavior as well. well. And many of us are showing up unconscious about our own behavior. In fact, I think it's a really good point, because I think a lot of individuals that are in helping professions you know, HR for sure, you know, consultant role, advisor role, yep. supportive role, teachers, I think healthcare professionals yeah. are, you know, in our environments, not even always aware of our own experiences as what Martha and I call adult, adult survivor of a damaged past, ASDP, don't even realize how much our own issues are playing into every single thing happening. And to your point, witnessing you know, complex leaders and individuals in our workplaces having meltdowns, having, you know, significant fights where silos get reinforced, where, you know, are actually unintentionally, I think, and unconsciously at times creating toxic cultures. Yep. All because of the things that we are unaware of in terms of the impact of our past on our beliefs about ourselves, on our interpretations of other people, and also our decisions about how we act to try to create a place of safety 
Yeah. And, you know, like you and I've talked about this in my, in my own, my own life, you know, while if you look at my resume, you say, yeah, it's pretty impressive. But what most people don't know until they read the book is, yeah, it was fueled by my underlying belief. I wasn't good enough. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and as a result of that, I spent all my time trying to people please everybody. And, you know, perfectionism, especially in relationship to, to men in particular, men in authority. Yep. And that was entirely because I grew up with a dad who was in like, you know, I know you, you had a challenging dad too, who had unpredictable rage. Yep. And I always assumed it was my fault and that I was causing it. And that, you know, m my belief was everybody else held the right to decide whether or not I was good enough. Yep. And I had to constantly prove it over and over and over and over again for year after year after year and year after year after year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, that's the unconscious wound of career path, That that's not a great place. It isn't. And I think more and more of us are there, unfortunately. Now, you just used an acronym and I want to dig into it a little bit more because I had never heard of this acronym. And as soon as I saw it, I was, I was like, Oh my gosh, I could have, there's a whole other, a whole other way to enter into this concept of being trauma informed. And it's ASDP. So can you tell us a little bit? How did you find out about this? Like, is it surfacing more in the literature? Well, when Martha and I were writing the book and we started to realize how many of us out there in the world, you know, again, the research suggesting at least two thirds experienced one or potentially more major traumas before the age of 18, we were trying to, trying to think of a name. What, you know, what, what are we, you know, and there, there are a few terms out there, a few acronyms, ACOA, adult children of alcoholics is one. Mm -hmm. and, and ACOA is a wonderful organization. I went to the ACOA meetings for many years when I was living in Chicago. However, it was very narrow. It was all about growing up with addiction, uh, you know, alcoholism or drug addiction right. family. What we were talking about related to childhood trauma or adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, as they're referred to, is that's a very broad bucket, you know, that's a very broad bucket of experiences that people can have. The ACEs come from a body of research that were, you know, CDC and Kaiser Permanente and two doctors back in the late 90s did a study of 17,000 adults in the U.S. And I've researched this and I know that the studies have been replicated in other countries also. And they asked people, the 17,000 people to say, you know, these 10 adverse childhood experiences, how many did you experience? And they're pretty traumatic things, you know, um, physical, emotional, sexual abuse, uh, neglect, violence in the home, addiction in the home, mental illness in the home. You know, the list goes, you know, yep. these are pretty serious things. And, you know, so that's a broad bucket of experiences. And I think there are many other adverse childhood experiences that weren't covered in the original survey, poverty, discrimination, yeah. bullying. I mean, I, there are a lot of experiences that we can have when we're growing up, which is why Martha and I came up with this broad term, adult survivor of a damaged past. And at first I kind of, you know, I was resistant to it. I'm like, I don't know. I don't like calling myself that. But then as I've been working with the acronym and the concept, the concept is, you know, we are adults today. And as adults, we have opportunity to really actually reprogram our, the neural pathways in our brain because yeah. of the science of neuroplasticity and positive psychology. So we can come to our workplaces as an adult. The S is survivor, which is really a recognition of resilience and the fact that, you know, we, we don't have any idea of the kinds of things that 
our colleagues and our bosses and our leaders and our, our employees have experienced. But I believe that if you've had one of those major adverse childhood experiences or others, you are resilient. And so there's this essence of survivor is a, for me, it's a strength word. Yeah. B for damaged is just recognizing that there's been some dysfunctionality that occurred and that there's some damaged beliefs that we carry about ourselves. And again, like, you know, I talked about it, it, it often is completely unconscious, uh, our connection of those limiting beliefs to the past. So my limiting beliefs, for example, I'm not good enough. I deserve to get in trouble. I, I know somebody who a very senior level person in a completely different profession shared with me that his limiting belief was he couldn't do anything right. Yeah. His dad told him that every day, you know, so the, the list goes on and on. So that damage piece is those damaged beliefs that we carry with us. That's the D. And then the P stands for past, which is a recognition that these things happen in the past, but they were often carrying them like luggage, you know, baggage with us into our present day. And so we coined the term ASDP. That's a Susan oh, creation. That's amazing. I know like when I saw it, it, I just really resonated. I thought it was a softer way because like you, I... <laughs> did not equate anything in my life with the word trauma mm. and everyone else around me was looking in equating it but i couldn't but a damaged past and survivor i'm like oh yeah okay i think i could walk through that door and and not you know the similar to you the voices were so just just always kind of putting me in a position of i have to do this i have to do this i have to do this versus like learning how to be and being more conscious about some of those those thoughts that well, I still have to work out, right, to get yeah. them out. Well, you just made a really good point that I want to build on, which is the concept of not really resonating with the word trauma. I, I absolutely, like that word and me never went along together. I never thought of my childhood as yep. a trauma childhood. I never thought of my childhood as dysfunctional because I, I knew people had it far worse than I did. Yep. And then I had a therapist who was amazing, and she recommended I go to a healing trauma program. And I remember thinking, why? You know, <laughs> what, what, what are you talking about? Well, it was a great program. It was seven days, very intensive. And what I learned in that program, and, and I, you talk about this in your book also, I loved it when I saw it in your book, is that there are different kinds of trauma. There's yeah. the big T trauma, and then there's the little trauma, little T trauma. And the big T trauma are like the things that we were talking about with the adverse childhood experiences. Yeah. But then little T trauma is like lots of little things that happen chronically. Like never being sure when my dad was going to explode and charge me. Yeah. Um, that sort of constant state of being in hypervigilance and always on guard. That that over time, that chronic experience of little T's actually equates to a big T trauma. Yeah. And then it made sense to me. I'm like, yeah, I get that. That resonates. That resonates. Yeah. I, again, I was reading that part thinking, oh, wow, imagine if I had gone to, you know, a place like that. Yeah, I really, I really resisted. I just didn't nope. think I was, yeah, like it just didn't, it didn't no. fit, like that doesn't happen. And I'm strong. And it really, I felt it would be a sign of weakness if I admitted that. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So, you know, congratulations to you and, and, and Martha, just to bring that, that word, I've already started using it. And I think it's, it's just a, a really friendly opening and invitation for people. So can we talk a little bit about this conscious healing career path? Yep. And I think it's probably fair to say every single one of us at work 
has an opportunity to elevate our consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so what does a conscious healing career path look like? Excellent. Well, let me tell you first a little bit on the unconscious wounded career path. Okay. Uh, because that is the bridge is, and that's the healing at work bridge. The healing at work bridge is how do you go from the unconscious wounded career path to the conscious healing career path? And it's not hard to do. But first of all, the unconscious wounded career path is being completely unaware of our um, belief system from the past or our sort of what I call the survival behavior techniques that we learn to manage our environments. And so when we come into the workplace and we're unconscious about that connection, we get into relationship with other people at work when there's conflict or when somebody does something that triggers us and we have an emotional reaction to it. The unconscious path is when that happens, we spiral downward into, you know, ruminating about what happened, second guessing what we did, replaying in our minds over and over about what happened in a meeting or why somebody did something or why they didn't do something. And, and then going home after the end of the day and beating ourselves up because we should have done something differently or we should have said something or not said something. You know, so this is experience of this being on a hamster wheel where you're constantly, mm. you know, gauging all the people around you. Do they accept you and value you? And if your boss looks at you cross-eyed one day, you may interpret it as he's mad at me or I'm in trouble. Yep. And it's this sort of regular, I always felt like a spiral into this space of stress, anxiety, worry. Right. And, and it's nonstop. And and non can we like, let's pull out some real yeah. specific examples for people. You used one about sitting in a meeting. So let's yeah. say we were in a meeting and we were getting passionate about what, what could be done for product X. Can you play out what, what might be an example of taking home some of those unconscious? Yeah. Beliefs? So for example, something could be happening in a meeting where we're talking about a product and, you know, whatever needs to be done. And maybe one of my colleagues cuts me off and interrupts me or says something that feels disrespectful to me. And I get, emo I, I feel triggered. Like I immediately, the brain goes into fight, flight, or freeze, you know, right. That, limbic system of the brain kind of goes right into, you know, for me, it was always free. It's like, uh Oh, you know, uh, you know, this person doesn't value me or they are disrespecting me. And so all of a sudden we're having all these thoughts going on in our head about the interchange. And in some cases, and this is, this happens all the time. Somebody will say something in a meeting, you know, and there's lots of examples I have in my own career where I'll get triggered and think, you know, they don't value me or they don't respect right. me or whatever. And later I may go in and check in with them to say, Hey, you said this in the meeting. I took it to mean that. Is that what you meant? And they're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> they're yeah. oblivious. And so we get triggered by things that are happening around us through our own interpretive lens. Uh, and I won't even go in for many years. I wouldn't even go in and check out those things. Yeah, I would just either. sit and ruminate with yeah. it. And it's heavy. It carries, yeah. it carry that stuff. Absolutely. And the other component of the self of the unconscious wounded career path, which you talk a lot about, is I didn't really have any strategies for self-regulation when I was yeah. triggered emotionally. Yep. My my technique for self-regulation was Chardonnay, mm -hmm. which was a problem. I, I was drinking too much to try to take the edge off the feelings of inadequacy. Yep. 
And, you know, so that's sort of the experience of the unconscious wound career path is repeating this for 30 years of your career. And, oh, I forgot the part about, you know, when I feel like someone's not happy with me immediately into overdrive on people pleasing and perfectionism, which, as you know, is exhausting and, you know, is never enough. And you're constantly striving for some impossible, perfect standard, which, by the way, has a big impact on our teams as well. So that's what I lived for a long time. And why I wrote this book is I wanted to teach people how to step off of that path, which is, you know, has huge costs, significant costs, costs in terms of our relationships with our colleagues, costs in terms of our relationship with our family. One of the the most painful costs that I paid was in my desperate need to be validated through my work and through my bosses. When I wasn't at work, I was worrying about work or drinking too much. And as a result, I was completely emotionally unavailable for my sons when they were growing up. And I usually get really choked up when I talk about this because I am embarrassed and I am I am deeply sad. And I often grieve about that missed time where I was literally creating, you know, ASTPs of my two sons growing up in a home where they were being, you know, at least by me neglected. You know, so that that's the, the workaholism, the addiction, all those things yeah. are costs, let alone the cost in terms of the relationship I have with my, myself. And so to your question, which now I feel like my answer is way too long, but my, my the answer to your question about what's the conscious healing career path is, is, first of all, becoming aware of the connection to our past, our past experiences, our beliefs about ourselves, our behavior patterns, you know, all the things that we did to manage that environment in an effort to create a sense of safety. And can I, can I add something there, Susan? Yeah, sure. I was adamant that I was stronger than my past, that it didn't define me. And so I would just like to add in, if that is, if you're hearing those words, like, whatever, I left that behind. I don't need to unpack that stuff. Let that be a signal to you that perhaps there is something more there to understand. And I'm I'm sharing that with love and good intention. Everybody's going to be at a different place in their healing journey. And that's obviously something to be done outside of work. But the harder I ran, the more I was running from a, a lot of, of buried stuff that I didn't think I had time to unpack, nor did I need to. I left it behind. And a lot of people, I get to this point sometimes when I'm talking to people and I get, you know, yeah, Susan, you know, that's the past. Why spend any time worrying about it? Or, you know, I would never be talking about this. The the number one job in our family was to protect the family secrets. Another one is, yeah, I don't want to talk about this because it could hurt the reputation of family members. I definitely felt that way since my dad was a minister in a small community. Mm. But ultimately what I believe is that when we stay in a state of resistance to our past and really understanding and unlocking how it's affecting us today, I think it's limiting our potential and our capability. And, you know, a lot of people didn't experience any of those traumas. And they still come to me and say, I didn't experience any of those aces, but I also have limiting beliefs about myself. I often beat myself up, you know, and so there's this universal reaction and response to healing at work that's really blown me away. Yeah. Regardless of where I've talked, I've talked all over the world to many groups at all levels in the company and and also external groups as well. And, and it's surprising to me that when I start to share some of my own stories, which I do in the book and I do in my keynote, 
that, I mean, there are people, I could see the people in the audiences with tears in their eyes because it's resonating. And to your point, a lot of people, it's not easy to do this inside work. You know, the inner work's hard work. It's painful. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I've been through the ringer and I know you have too, and probably your listeners have like, and why can't we just have it without, but I believe that the darkest, most difficult moments in our careers and actually in our lives are the greatest lessons to us as leaders and as human beings. They are. And that, you know, that opportunity to step onto the conscious healing career path, which is recognizing you're always going to have bumper car moments with other people at work. I get triggered all the time because I'm human. But the time I spend beating myself up, ruminating about what happened, challenging myself about why I didn't do something or did, did something poorly, you know, giving myself a D on my, my daily performance review. I spent a lot less time in that place because of, you know, the capability that through, I, in the book, I talk about my rapid power reclaim is how do you reclaim your power quickly. So you aren't spending, you know, days, weeks in that spiral down into that stress, anxiety, and worry space. It, because it, it comes back to what you were saying, then our, our families don't get the best of us. And I, I know for me, part of my journey has been a real revelation about how mean I've been to myself. And it has so ingrained into me that I didn't actually realize how that was determining where I put my energy and where I put my efforts. And, you know... You didn't talk about this as much in your book, but I'm going to add it in here because it was a big aha for me was just how much my body was storing, how much my body was trying to look after me. And I'd never really treated my body as as an instrument. A past podcast guest I had used this uh, quote of using your body as an instrument versus an ornament. Oh, wow. And I've been using my body more as an ornament, but now that I'm recognizing how much my emotions and my, my body have just suppressed so much, it's, it's given me permission and it's given me some space to just sort of realize all of these unconscious things that were driving my behavior. Again, doing the best that we could with the tools that we had. Yep. I love that. I, I, I also had a realization there's a, a guy named Adam P. P. I'm going to hope I say his name right. Piandis, who has a formula for forgiving yourself. And, you know, the statement is I, I forgive myself. This is my statement. I forgive myself for judging myself uh, for not being good enough because the truth is I am good enough. Mm. And that practice of, you know, to your point, managing the inner critic, you know, us overachieving perfectionistic leaders are, oftentimes constantly judging ourselves. So the inner critic is like on overdrive and, you know, beating you over the head constantly. And, you know, the part of the the movement onto the conscious healing career path is actually, all right, all right, all right, inner critic, I hear you. Thank you for the feedback. Okay. Inner coach, where are you? (laughs) You Mm. And, and, uh, and how do I start to build a better relationship with the inner coach that can help me practice the forgiveness, you know, method that Adam teaches and, you know, because it, it is that it's the inner critic in, in the inner critic. And oftentimes it's a parent's voice we're hearing. Right. And the echoes echo the our adult selves echoing back to our childhood selves all over again. And I know you talked that you referenced Kristen Neff's work on self-compassion, which is amazing. I have not read her book, Fierce Self-Compassion, Fierce Self-Compassion but I, I use her, her, her 
self-compassion quiz all the time. Yeah. And so, and I know you talked about compassion too. You shared, I thought, a really helpful story about extending compassion to your colleagues. And so this is part of this conscious mm -hmm. path. Can you share a little bit about that? I can. You know, I think one of a lot of our qualities, so when I think about leaders in particular, one of the things that we're typically very good at is making decisions and, you know, making good judgments about things going on in our workplaces. Our greatest strength overplayed becomes a potential liability. And so when we're really good decision makers, we can also be fairly judgmental of ourselves and of others. Mm. And, you know, there are many moments in my career where I was feeling a lot of judgment, you know, for lots of different reasons. I'll just pick one that happened years ago where I was feeling really judgmental of a boss that I had. And I think I was, you know, I was so mad. I was ready to leave the organization and just full of judgment. And, you know, typically those that are judging others harshly are also judging themselves the most harshly. So this is definitely when I was in an unconscious wounded career place. And I had a coach at the time who said, you know, why not, you know, you can leave next week. You can, you can resign next week. But before you do that, let's figure out if there are any patterns that are part of your makeup that are actually impacting your relationship with this particular boss. And she really pointed out that it was this concept that, if you are judging another person, you don't need to say that to the person. The person will feel it. Mm. Uh, this was the coach that I had named Tony Chinoy. And it was really like, well, that's really interesting. And so she said, I want you to really try something differently. I want you to shift from judgment to thinking about this boss through the lens of compassion. And, you know, you don't know what he's dealing with. You don't know what the challenges are that, he, you know, it's somebody at a higher level is going to have bigger problems to solve. And I remember thinking, all right, well, I have nothing to lose. I'll just try this compassion thing. And so I wrote this boss of mine a note, you know, and I said, look, I just want to apologize. I, I think that we, you know, as, we, as we, I think about we were doing some work together, getting ready for a big presentation. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry that it's sort of the day before the presentation. And my goal will be to get this done sooner. The reason why it wasn't done was because he hadn't made up his mind about which path he wanted to take in the presentation. Mm. But, you know, I sat that aside and I said, you know, I know you're traveling. I know you must be tired. And I want you to know I have two sets of slides for this presentation, depending on what which path you want to go tomorrow. And my goal is to get it so that you don't have to be in a place where you're reviewing slides the night before a presentation. So really coming from, you know, my best effort at compassion. And the next day in the meeting, I was sort of blown away because I wasn't really sure. He picked a path. So we went with that particular deck that we presented to the audience that we were presenting to. And in the middle of the meeting, he starts talking to the other people that were there. And he says, you know, I really appreciate Susan. And he started talking about me like I was the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> well, you are. <laughs> you know, I, I really didn't feel that way in this relationship. But I remember thinking compassion thing is actually pretty powerful. And, you know, so it's really managing the judgment in a more intentional, conscious way and shifting it into, all right, I'm going to be as compassionate as I can. It totally changed the relationship. You know, and so the, for the time that I worked for that person, after that time, we never had any any issues working together. And I'm guessing you had a little bit of self-compassion for yourself before you were able to extend it to somebody else. 
Yeah, I think, you know, working with this particular coach, I, I calmed down because I did realize, you know, all right, I don't really need to resign today. I can always do that next week. Mm-hmm. And so I got into a more regulated state where I wasn't in that, you know, hypervigilance, fight, flight, freeze state. And so I was able to say, all right, I'm going to try this as an experiment. And, and it worked really well. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I find people will say, well, they don't deserve it. Like you should see what they're doing. And just again, so, so heightened. Again, this is the path of, of consciousness. It doesn't excuse things, but right. I don't know. I, I believe most people like 99.99% of people get out of bed in the morning and go to work wanting to do a good job and not realizing the unintended impact that they're having on people. I completely agree. And I I do think that it is that unconscious space that so many people in the workplace are in. And, you know, what, what I what I notice is that when somebody has a very strong overreaction to something that's happened at work, in my mind, I always think this is an this is it's like gasoline on a fire from something from the past. Right. And you mentioned this in your book as well, which is that that limbic system part of our brain is our emotional brain, but it has no memory of time. And so when we go into fight, flight, or freeze, if something's happening that's causing our brain to think it's similar to what happened to us 20 years ago or 30 years ago or however long ago it was, the brain thinks it's happening all over again. And so I I have a slide in my keynote, it's like a gasoline explosion where we have these overreactions, triggered moments that are actually because of things that happened to us many, many years ago. So again, not to diagnose anything going on in the workplace, but when I see leaders that are what I say are overreacting for the the moment, I will often say afterwards, you know, tell me what you were feeling. Well, I was feeling really disrespected. Okay, great. Was there a time in the past when you felt really disrespected? And so they'll typically talk about something that happened, may not be childhood, but something else that happened. And all I'll say is, is it possible that this moment today, your reaction to it might have been fueled by your experience in the past, just to try to start to draw some connections. Yep. And often, you know, most of the leaders we work with are generally reflective and are willing to listen. Not all, but most. And they'll often think about it. And, you know, in this in this one particular case I'm thinking about, when I asked that question, the individual was able to share two examples, one from when they were kind of college age and one from when they were younger, where they felt really disrespected. And when we started talking about it and what happened when they got really angry at some colleagues, they were able to get into a state, a present day state. You know, so when they're stuck in that limbic system, they can't get to the prefrontal cortex where our problem solving logical analytical brains reside. And they were caught in that adrenaline warp of the fight, flight, or freeze. In this case, the person was into a fight mode. And when I could bring him out of that state by helping him connect his response to things that happened previously, he was able to get calm. Mm-hmm. He was able to realize that he'd actually, you know, maybe have hurt some of the relationships he had with people in the room when he got so mad. And then to his credit, actually went and apologized to a couple people. Wow. And so it's, you know, it, it, we talk about self-regulation. How do you self-regulate when you are triggered? And how do you come out of that state as quickly as possible so that you can respond in a professional, oftentimes, you know, executive level reaction? But I, I mean, it's to me, it's it's there's such a great opportunity to help people understand these these issues and connections so that they 
aren't having those overreactions, which can affect a whole system. Yeah. Well, and you talked about bumper car moments and, and this was one of the, the brilliant pieces of, of what you and Martha put together was really by the end, I was like, yeah, the workplace is, I mean, I've always inherently believed that the workplace was a good place to heal, but you put it together in, in a really helpful way that it is a really good place to, to heal. And you talk about bumper car moments. Mm -hmm. So can you tie those things together for us? Yeah. So bumper car moments are just those moments in the workplace. Of course, they happen in real in outside the workplace too, but yeah. my focus is on the workplace. Those moments in interaction with other people where something happens and there's like a triggered emotional response. Like it feels like a conflict has occurred. It can be a lot of things. I mean, it could be um, being excluded from a meeting, not invited to a meeting. It can be, you know, somebody interrupts you during a meeting. It could be getting passed over for a promotion. It's those moments when we have an emotional triggered response. That's a bumper car moment. And I say a bumper car moment, it's like, you know, the ride at the fair when you're riding around on the bumper cars and everything's going well and you're laughing and people are like, your friends are tapping into you. And then all of a sudden someone comes up behind you and slams into you yep. and you're mad because it hurts. And, and that, so that's what's happened when, when we get into these interactions with other people in the workplace, it feels like a crash has occurred. A lot of times the other person may not even know that there's a whole crash story going on in your head because of your own stories you're telling yourself about that other person or about yourself. But it's a, it is, it's an experience of like, you know, it's just an intense moment and you know, it's a real bumper car moment when you go back and you can't stop thinking about it. Mm. And you talk to your colleagues, you know, this, this colleague of mine was such a jerk and they were, you know, they were being so rude and, and, you know, so it, it kind of festers. That's the unconscious wounded career path, those bumper car moments. And those were typically the launch pad into that state of spiraling downward. Right. You know, so, I mean, there was lots of examples. I, I can think of an example of an individual. This was a past company of mine where we had a big job opening, like a really big, important job. And there were 12 internal candidates for the position. And the hiring leader and I worked, he got it down to two finalists. And the individual who didn't get the job came into my office angry, you know, this company doesn't value me. I'm going to leave. I mean, they were really mad. So that was a bumper car moment for this person. Right. They felt like they weren't good enough. That other person got the job. And so I said, okay, now I'm going to ask you to imagine that you're the hiring manager. And so I got the person into a state of imagining that they're the hiring manager. I said, I want you to do a compare and contrast between yourself and the individual who got the job. And we have a really cool model. I've used it at two companies. I call it the suitability model, which is fabulous for assessing people. So I took the person through the model. The first element was, you know, compare yourself to the other person on skills, knowledge, experience, and education. Okay, so that person did that. Yep. Secondly, compare yourself with the other person on capability to navigate the complexity of the job. Really big, complicated, regional role. They did that. And the third element, my favorite is temperament, you know, pluses and minuses on your temperament or your nature. Mm -hmm. So the individual did a, you know, plus and minus on both the candidates themselves and the other. And then the final element is comparing each of you on who really accepts and wants the role more than the other. And when we stood back and I said, all right, well, you're the hiring manager, you stand back, you look at that assessment, which person would you have picked for the job? 
And they said, oh, I would have picked the other person. <laughs> you know? and, and it was really, it was, you know, I was like, yeah. And by the way, the company greatly values you. Now, this person was ready to quit because in their head, a bumper car moment had happened. They got triggered. They, I'm sure it triggered some limiting beliefs about themselves. They got angry. So fight was their response. Yep. And fortunately, the individual stayed in the company. Six months later, and I didn't know this at the time when I was coaching them, six months later, they got an even bigger job. Wow. You know, so it's those misinterpretations of what's happening around us. And we take it, we personalize it, we believe negative beliefs about ourselves, and then we go into the state. And, you know, so the opportunity, again, is using those workplace moments, the bumper car crashes, as soon as we feel triggered, is a, it's like a warning sign to say, uh-oh, I need to step back from this because I am having a very strong reaction and I need to get conscious and really look at, is this coming from this moment? Am I telling myself a story with a set of assumptions that are completely in my head that could be totally wrong? And am I overreacting because of something similar that might have happened to me in the past? So in my rapid power reclaim method, when you're in the middle of one of these bumper car moments and you're having this emotional triggered negative response, you're using your unhealthy self-soothing habits like alcohol, drugs, gambling, uh, shopping, eating, whatever it is. Yep. That's the like trigger moment to say, okay, step one is create choice. When we're lost in that space of the, the fight, flight, or freeze, we go into like an adrenaline warp. We're not able to think logically because we're stuck in that section of our brain that can't think logically. And so in order to create choice, we have to process that emotion that's going on inside of us. Yep. And so I know you you may ask later about some of the rituals that are useful in these moments. Yep. Part of the practice of healing at work to create choice is you have to let that emotion come out of you. Yep. And so I, I have a few favorite techniques that I've learned. One simple one that I'll share, which is really simple and easy. I bought a plastic baseball bat on Amazon for $5. And you need to use sound, movement, or breath in order to get that energy out of you. It's like you've got to discharge the energy before right. you can come into a state of logical processing about what I'm going to do about it. So step one is just getting that discharge of emotion and energy out of your body. I'll take what that. did you use the bat for? Well, I would to get it out. I would hit the bed. I'd yell and scream, stomp up and down, sometimes cry. You know, just to get it's just all you need. Get it out. Sound, movement, and breath. Hitting the baseball bats, the movement, using my voice to yell and scream or cry. And, and you know, I'm not that good at breathing. <laughs> <laughs> Intentional breathing. You I can breathe. <laughs> better on my breathing, but getting the, the, you know, the energy out of me. And I don't know if there's time for another example that my current personal coach, Celine DaCosta, who's amazing, taught me an exercise. She calls it the circle exercise. I call it the three circle exercise. And it's another way of processing and discharging that emotion, that upset, feeling not good enough, whatever. And so she says, go into a room and imagine you, there are three circles in front of you, one to the left, one in front of you, and one to the right. And the one on your left, I want you to imagine, is you when you were little. So my left side circle here is little Susan, your inner child. That circle is all the raw emotion you felt when you were little. Mm. For me, it was rejection, abandonment, you know, not being loved. You know, that was my little one experience of my relationship with my dad. 
The middle circle is what's called the adapted child. And I think this comes from a body of research by a man named Dr. Terry Real, R-E-A-L. The adapted child is your ego defense protector. Right. So it's that it's that part of you that goes into some strategy to try to protect the little one from all that raw emotion. So my adapted child is the pleaser, the perfectionist. You know, so and there's lots of different adapted child behaviors. It could be bully. It could be, you know, trying to hide, stay invisible, stay off the radar. My, mine is the pleaser and the perfectionist. And then the circle off to the right is you and your highest functioning adult self. And it's the all-knowing, all-wise self. And so the exercise, when you're feeling this, you know, bumper car moment triggered energy and emotion, is to then let each one of those circles, each parts of you, talk to you about what's going on. Now, I'll admit, I thought this was really stupid in the beginning. And so the first time I did it, I was having a a difficult relationship with somebody personally, a friend of mine, and I was upset. I couldn't sleep. And so I thought, oh, what the heck? I'll try this three circle exercise. So I went into the room and I you know, started to talk about to my little one, like what's going on? And it started off a little slowly. But as I started, you know, letting that part of me talk, I felt sad. You know, so a lot of tears came out. I just felt sad about the dynamic going on in this friendship. So I cried, you know, movement, the sound, breath and movement crying. My adapted child was mad. I mean, I had so much anger because I felt like I'd bent over backwards and I tried to be a people pleaser. I'd done everything I could to try to, you know, improve this relationship. And it was back backfiring. It was not working. So a lot of anger came out, yelling, screaming, stomping. Wow. I was really surprised. And then I got to my, you know, so you let all that come out of you. That's the discharging of that energy. I got to my highest functioning self. And it was so funny because my highest functioning self's like, okay, you two guys, settle down. You know? Right, right. Settle down. And then I actually, I remember my adult self kind of I said, I just wanted to hug both those parts of me. Wow. So it was like this loving energy of saying, I'm really sorry you're feeling this way. And then the other thing, it was almost like this clarity came to me in my highest functioning adult self to say, you know, if this relationship does not come back together, you know, it's sad and you'll grieve, but you'll be okay. And so there was just this clarity and calmness that came from that experience. And so I felt like I had discharged all that emotion. So often we never do that. We keep it inside and we get sick. It makes us sick. I mean, I think, I think it just is not a good thing to do. And what was so interesting in the, the relationship is that when I was able to discharge that and come into the next discussion with my friend, I was confident and I was somewhat I guess I was comfortable that if the relationship ended, I would be okay. Right. So because my energy field had changed so much, the whole relationship actually to this day, we're still really good friends, but I know it's because I took responsibility for managing my part of what was going on. Cause I got triggered in relationship to this person. That was my property. Yep. She had her own property. Melody Beatty, the author of so many great books, but The Language of Letting Go, mm. as I think it's May 13th, her reading talks about property lines and yep. really clear on what's your property and what's someone else's. 
So when we discharge all that emotion, we're taking care of our own property and how we've shown up in the relationship. And it was very powerful. So step one, that's a long explanation. Create choice. In order right. to elevate your action, you have to discharge it. Step two is now you can elevate your action. And, you know, so when you're in the middle of or after or preparing for difficult uh, interaction, you can plan how am I going to handle this next interaction? My elevating uh, my action in this particular case was to say, I'm okay. I'll be sad, but I'm okay if the relationship cannot be you know, brought back together. And, you know, so I, I was able to have an elevated action and energy going into the discussion. And then the last step is once you've done those first two steps, this is the conscious healing career path. The third step is to celebrate when you've managed this differently rather than going right into the adapted child, going into fight, whatever. It, when we start to celebrate things that we've done differently, that's the actual practice of rewiring the neural pathways. Right. So it's t taking time to celebrate, going outdoors in nature, taking a hot bath, spending time with our animals, whatever celebrating looks like, the act of celebrating is the act of integrating that into our identity. And so that's the process that, that I've been on my own journey. And I use these techniques all the time when I'm triggered. But boy, I spent a lot less time in stress, anxiety, and worry. I can get myself out much quick, more quickly. And when I get into that adult highest functioning self, it's, you know, it's like channeling into the universal knowledge of understanding how best to move forward. And, and then the stress levels go down. Like you said, your body's going to be more healthy. People are going to like to work with you more. You probably get way more stuff done, like a lot more done. It really, this is again, why I thought, I think everyone should be reading this book because, you know, you bring a lot of science and research. So I know we don't have time to get into like the neuroplasticity and the positive psychology and PERMA and all of Martin yeah. Seligman's work, but it, it's just, Again, bumper car moments happen every single day at work and these opportunities are there. And one last thing I want to say before we close off and go to the, sure. the, the final three questions is you pointed out in the book that you get hired into these workplaces because people want you, right? They want you there. So the foundation of the relationship with your, with your, your colleagues and your, your boss is one of, we want you in here. Absolutely. And it's easy to forget that and immediately go into self-blame, self-criticism, self-judgment, especially when we're wired for that from the past. Yeah. But again, when we're when we're doing that on the negative track, that's the unconscious wounded career path. When we start to say, all right, I'm, I'm going to try this conscious healing career path. It's a lot better place to be. I just, I have so much more fun. Even when I'm triggered, I'm like, oh, okay, another learning opportunity. You know? right. So yeah, no, I, I could agree with you more. Yeah. Now, Susan, before we get to the final three questions, which I think are only going to be two now, where can listeners find out more about your book, your programs and, and what you offer? Yeah. So I have a website, a personal website, healingatwork.com. You can get lots of information about, about this work. Amazon also has Healing at Work available, both soft copy, hard copy, and audible. And in my LinkedIn profile, Susan J. Schmidt Winchester is yeah. another place where I am a lot. Well, I highly, highly suggest people treat themselves to this wonderful book and to start off their, their new year <laughs> on a really good conscious path. Now, Susan, I ask uh, everyone who comes on the show three questions that 
you know are part of my Evolve model, self-awareness, self-regulation, and co-regulation. Now, I think you gave some incredible examples of self-regulation, that circle method. So we're not going to do that one because you gave some like really great insight there. But I'm going to start off with self-awareness. And so maybe a time or experience where your self-awareness got really elevated. Maybe it was in a moment of tremendous insight. Yeah, I can think of a very distinct moment. So this was years and years ago. I had just been selected as the head of HR, vice president, my first really big vice president job, working with the leadership team, running a $4 billion business at this company. And I was joining the team, nine men and me. So nine men from a variety of different countries and me. My predecessor who'd been in that role had not lasted in that role long and then left, you know, sort of like, hmm, I wonder what happened. And this team had a reputation. They called themselves the Pirates. Yes. So this is a very successful team. They created huge value for the company. They were intense. I think some would describe them as arrogant, but they had this energy like, you know, we can do anything and, you know, beat the customer or beat the competitor. And I came into this relationship and I, it was like the first 11 months were miserable. I was like sport. One of the men would walk down to my office early in the morning. Uh, I'd be in there typing because I was always in early on my computer. He'd slam his fist on the window just to watch me jump. Uh, Another one, I remember the very first meeting with this crew, uh, four-hour meeting. They'd gone through a number of different updates, and towards the end of the meeting, the the leader said, are there any other updates? And I said, yeah, I've got some important HR topics. I started to talk. Well, one of the men stood up. He looked at me. He slammed his notebook shut, and he walked out of the room. And I wanted to die. I was in tears. That first 11 months with them, All of my strategies that I'd used up until that point weren't working. Perfectionism and people-pleasing seemed to be pushing them farther away. Mm. And uh, again, this one coach, Tony Chinoy, she totally changed my level of self-awareness when she did a really cool exercise with me. And she said, I want you to pick the worst of the group. So there's nine of them. I pick four. And she said, I want you to imagine that you are in their eyes looking at you. And if they had to describe you in the symbolic form of an animal – what animal would they describe you as? And I burst out laughing. I'm like, oh my God, I'm a golden retriever puppy dog. All I want them to do is pat me on the head and tell me what a good girl I am. (laughs) You know, puppies can be really annoying, wanting too much attention. That was the energy I was creating. Then she had me get back in my eyes and she said, all right, what if you had to pick an animal for each of them, what animal would each of them represent? I had a grizzly bear, a gorilla, a wolf with long fangs and a hyena smiling but circling me ready to go in for the kill wow and i'll never forget it because you know in that moment of realizing it was a major turning point of awareness for me because i was stuck in judgment i was judging them for being what i thought was rude and disrespectful but they were triggering all my all my stuff my you're not good enough you don't deserve to be here who do you think you are and in that moment when she helped me realize that I was coming into this relationship with this weak, needy, validate me, telling, telling, you know, letting them determine whether or not I was good enough. I was absolutely not working. And so I worked with her and I decided, you know, the puppy dog's part of my temperament. You know, I like people to be happy. I like to, you know, I like to do a good job. But as I stepped into a really important leadership role, I couldn't keep doing that. Mm. So I shifted and said, you know, I need to be more of a lioness. I I needed to have an animal that could be a little bit more effective with some of these strong, strong leaders. Yep. 
And, you know, so I won't go through all the details, but one by one, I mustered up my lioness energy and I started to basically take each one on in a different way. So just a real quick example, the man that would slam his fist on the wall, he was a grizzly bear. I walked into his office one day, totally unannounced, sat down in the chair. My heart was racing and he had his back to me. He was on his computer and he slowly turns around. He looks at me and he, I can hear him growling like, what are you doing in my office? Yep. <laughs> and I said, you know, hey, I realize you never show up for a single meeting I've ever scheduled. And I'm just curious. Is it A, you're too busy? B, you don't like HR, you don't value HR? Or is it C, you just don't like me? And I just sat there. And he thought, I'll never forget, he got this sort of look, far distant look on his, uh, on his face. Then he looks at me and says, you're right. I'll never do that again. Wow. And literally to the day he died, we were friends. But wow. that was a major turning point for me to realize that my judgment was actually pushing them away, my neediness pushing them away, and that I needed to change how I was showing up and how I thought about myself in that relationship. I, I had earmarked and highlighted that part in the chapter. It was it was really, really like I started thinking of the type the types of animals I must have been portraying. It was a great, a great exercise. Thank you for sharing the details of that. Yeah. So the second question is usually around self-regulation. As I said, we we talked about that. Let's go to the final question, which is really about connecting and the fact that we are you know, ultimately all connected together. I like to talk about music with this notion of co-regulation. So is there a song or genre of music that helps you feel connected to something bigger than yourself? Well, my favorite genre of music is the 80s music, but the probably that I, I even pulled it out because I knew you were going to ask this question. The work that I've done with my personal coach, she shared some amazing songs where when I listen to them, they're very healing and they really, I feel connected to the universal energy. Yeah. One, I can't read with these glasses. One is called uh, Heartbeats by Jose Gonzalez. And then the other one that I love is called Shimbae, S-H-I-M-B-A-L-A-I-E by Maria Gadu, G-A-D-U. Wow. And that music is just, every time I play it, I just, it, it's just so, it's just empowering. And it just, I feel connected and charged into the universal energy. Thank you. You know, I, I never get replicated answers on that on that question. Always, always have an expanding playlist. Well, Susan, I am so grateful that we were connected. And I hope that our paths cross again in the future. I think your work is incredible. Thank you. I think your work's incredible, too. Your book is outstanding. I'm about three quarters of the way through it. I love it. There's so many parallels of our work together. There are. And like I said at the very beginning, I think many of us are coming together now to, to really lead what I think is a much needed global movement in our workplaces. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you also to the listeners for tuning in and for bringing us into your 2024 playlist. I hope that you have found some tremendous insight here from Susan. Please let us know what you think of this episode and also like, subscribe, share. The more people we can get listening to this work, the more we can help our workplaces thrive and help us be happier and have more hope. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Now, I know I say this often because I love to talk and I love all the guests that come on the show, but I really could have talked for another hour with Susan. It was quite
quite something to have somebody who has so much experience in really big, large companies talk to us about the importance and the relevance and how to move to a path of healing in the workplace. I think it's a great way to kick off 2024. And Susan has also offered to us, us being the Evolve community, an opportunity to access one of her tools, which she calls 34 Ways to Feel Better Instantly. It will be a link that you can access in the show notes, and it will take you directly to Susan's site. And if you are interested in getting that in exchange for your email address, you can get that great resource. I know I'm going to be checking it out, and perhaps you will too. Thanks for kicking off your year with us, and we are looking forward to bringing you more spectacular guests this year. Bye for now.